When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Now, I was brought up in the 80s. We were told that Europeans took this world from a place of superstition and ignorance to a place of enlightenment. A lot of science was done from kind of Copernicus onwards. But you know what? We're unpicking that narrative now. Like much of what I learned at school, it turns out it might not have been true. And no one's doing that more so than Associate Professor in the History of Science and Technology at the University of Warwick, James Poskett. He's just written a gigantic book, a radical retelling of the history of science that challenges this Eurocentric narrative. I tell you, you can't walk across the street with these days without someone challenging a Eurocentric narrative. But it's good, because they need challenging. I'm happy to see it. His book that leaves Europe behind, and it talks about scientists from Africa, America, Asia, Pacific. And he really convinces me that science is this extraordinary, very rich story of global cultural exchange. And we talk in this podcast about ideas rattling up and down the silk routes and people like Newton, like some of the great European scientists that we've all heard of, engaging, learning, listening, and building on the work of scientists all over the world. Super exciting stuff. If you wish to listen to other podcasts about science and the history of science, we do more and more of that here at History. I think it's the older I'm getting, the more I realise that maybe I need to spend less time on the generals, more time on the scientists, right? And so we're doing a lot of that. We did a lot of that during the pandemic, and a lot of it is to come. So please check out History Hit TV. It's where we keep all of these podcasts throughout the ads. You can go and listen to them all. You can also access hundreds of hours of history documentaries we've got there. It's like Netflix for history. It's all over there. You get two weeks free if you start today. And if you tap on the link in the description of this podcast, you'll get whisked there by the power of science. Boom. In the meantime, folks, here's James Poskett. Enjoy. James, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me. You know what? I'm guilty. I'm a guilty party here because I think science was pretty much invented by Copernicus (laughs) and then obviously developed by many other people. But you're here to tell me that's just absolute nonsense. I'm afraid so, yeah. Um, Good. That is what I'm here for. Good. Tell me all about it. I mean, are these scientific traditions in places that are completely distinct? I guess in the case of America, so they have, they must be. Are they scientists that are drawing on the same body of like ancient Near East and Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean kind of traditions? Or how and where are these things springing up? Yeah, so I try and unravel this myth that modern science was invented in Europe and that it started with people like Copernicus, as you said. In some cases, there are quite distinct traditions, although I think that's only really in the case of the Americas, as you suggest, for the reason that it was 
isolated from the West, from Europe and Africa and Asia. Elsewhere, there are traditions, but they're remarkably well connected from the medieval period onwards. So there are Muslim astronomers in China in the late medieval and early modern period. There are Arabic manuscripts crossing the Sahara to places like Timbuktu and also into Europe. So I think the idea of a set of isolated different scientific traditions, like a Hindu tradition, a Muslim tradition, a Chinese tradition, is also part of the myth, which makes it hard to tell a genuinely connected global history of science. It's something to immediately flip back and talk about Europeans and how they yeah. depended on these famous, you know, the kind of Arab texts coming in and yeah. igniting Christendom. But just talk to me, though, about the scientific tradition in the Near East, in what we call the Middle East. I mean, was that during and following the great golden age of the caliphates? Yeah, so there is this, as you say, a really strong scientific mathematical tradition in what's now the Middle East, in the Islamic world broadly. And as I said, it's kind of a really broad, actually, Islamic world that, yes, is centred on places like Baghdad initially, later Istanbul with the Ottoman Empire, but stretches all the way to West Africa um, through South Asia with the Mughal Empire later on and into China. And those scholars are, on the one hand, they're translating and reading ancient Greek texts, but they're also critiquing them. And I think this is something that's often forgotten, that they're not simply a kind of stepping stone for the European rediscovery of the ancient world. They're doing original scientific thinking themselves. So they read ancient Greek texts like Ptolemy's account of the universe, and they very quickly start pulling holes in it, saying, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. Clearly, the planets don't move in perfect circles. And to preserve that, we're going to have to do some pretty interesting mathematical gymnastics to sort that out. So there are lots of critiques of ancient science already in the Islamic world, and lots of new, particularly mathematical and astronomical techniques that are coming out of what is now Iran, Iraq, Turkey, etc. And those after the fall of Constantinople, after the Ottoman defeat of the Byzantine Empire, lots of those texts begin to arrive in Europe, often through an intermediary Byzantine translation. And part of the history, you're right, is showing how Europeans absolutely relied on other cultures of science. Although the other important part of my argument is that it wasn't just Europeans relying on these other cultures. Other cultures actually were making their own scientific discoveries throughout the modern period as well. We talk about the Silk Route, but is it as easy for ideas to travel on those great arteries of Eurasia as it was for bits of silk or pepper? Yes, I think it was, to cut a long story short. I think you're spot on with the analogy. I think there is a long history of the Silk Roads that connects together the sciences of West Africa, the Middle East, South and East Asia, and sort of Europe to an extent. And this is particularly in the late medieval and the early modern period, a period in which those connections are intensifying through trade and through religious networks. So a lot of it is pilgrimage. There are scholars from Mali who travel to Mecca or Medina and return with Arabic manuscripts that describe new astronomical ideas and vice versa. And it is also in both directions. So there are Indian scholars that are sent by wealthy Maharajas to Europe, even in the early 18th century, 
to collect scientific texts from Europe and return. So there's these really two-way exchanges of knowledge. And for the early modern period, it is all religious and trading networks, which often overlap. And it's the physical things. So it really is like the silk, you know. It's an Arabic manuscript. It's a printed account of um, a book in Europe that ends up in a library in Jaipur. It's those kind of physical connections. And what's the relationship between science and technology? So the one thing in the 1980s when I was at school, we were allowed to think that the Chinese were quite good at was inventing bits of pieces that made their way to Europe and allowed the Europeans to kill each other more effectively. Paper and gunpowder and things, are they travelling? Is it the data? Is it the knowledge required to make these things locally? Or are there bits and bobs travelling alongside those manuscripts? It's very interesting you mention your own kind of schooling because part of the argument is my book is also trying to explain, if I'm right and this is a big myth, well, where did it come from? And a lot of it has to do with the Cold War and attitudes to the East generally, to the Soviet Union, communist China, etc. And a vision, as you say, of perhaps these places as being technologically advanced. It was kind of hard to argue the Soviet Union wasn't in the early Cold War, but they're devoid of ideas because they've got the wrong ideology. And that division was often made in terms of science and technology. So historians of science and technology have argued a lot about this, about what's the difference between science and technology? Does science help produce technology or is it the other way around? Does actually practical skills produce science? My view is that the distinction clearly has a kind of contemporary value in classifying things. But in terms of the way that knowledge develops is a slightly artificial distinction in that all knowledge is produced by, it's not ever somebody sitting in a room thinking. Even historians, we like do things, we read things, we pick up things. So I think the material worlds of those technologies, of the trade, of the books, of the things, of the instruments is really important to the sciences. And I would also say that this distinction, this idea that, say, Chinese knowledge was all technical, but not scientific, or actually it's often the opposite way around with Indian science. So there's kind of claim that Hindu science was very precise and mathematical and spiritual, but lacked any practicality. I'd say those distinctions, they have a kind of maybe a partial truth, but it's a question of degree rather than kind. Chinese science was also, in other ways, very precise, mathematical. It wasn't just technical. The astronomical theories that were developed were very advanced, and some of the astronomical systems were more precise in certain ways than European ones. When it came to natural history, there was an enormous effort to classify the natural world in a systematic way that would have been totally out of place in Europe until Linnaeus came along in the 18th century. But the Chinese have been doing that for generations, and particularly at the end of the Ming Dynasty. I'm very suspicious of that distinction, to cut a long story short. And like everything we're taught in school, we should be very suspicious. <laughs> yeah, good, definitely suspicion. Before we come on some of the great scientists who we've forgotten to remember, you do a really interesting thing where you point out even the famous, the kind of canonical European scientists, what they owe to people beyond Europe. So on Copernicus, we kind of dealt with that, that he is reliant on these sets coming from the Near East. Newton's really interesting. I, I didn't realise how connected he was to a kind of global network. 
Yeah, Newton is a great case study because he pretty much says it himself when he says, everyone knows I don't make any of my own observations. And then later, Enlightenment scholars like Voltaire, they would say Newton couldn't have done anything without the voyages of various people. So it's right there in the Principia, in Newton's famous work. It's there in the sources from the Europeans. And once you think about it, it makes sense. Newton's theory of gravitation, of the laws of motion, relied on collecting astronomical and other observational data from around the world because it was about reconciling the differences between these observations, particularly in terms of the length of a pendulum to swing for a second at different places around the world due to gravity. And unsurprisingly, in the 17th century, if you were going to get observations, well, the reason Europeans were travelling around the world was colonial trade, so the East India Company particularly, lots of the observations come via there, and the transatlantic slave trade. So many of Newton's observations, which he directly cites and indeed kind of provide the problem that he's trying to solve with gravity, come from the voyages made by French slave traders and astronomical observations made by a particularly French astronomer called Jean Richet, who travelled to West Africa aboard a slave ship and then travelled to the West Indies and South America via French slave trading ships. So what I show in the book and what a number of historians of science have been arguing is that there would be no Principia without those connections. And those connections are also really disturbing and problematic connections in terms of thinking about how it is that Newton collected knowledge. A man who himself was personally invested in the South Sea Company, the East India Company, and so on. So there is a quite direct connection between the way in which Newton developed his theory, the data he provided for it, and the world of enslavement and empire that he was a part of, of course. Every time people talk about this kind of stuff, I just think about the phone in my hand and how our descendants will be absolutely furious with their old granddad, the cobalt on his phone so he could check his Twitter was all coming from appalling minds in the Congo, whatever else. It's, um, yeah. it's dark. Anyway, um, talk about Darwin. Yeah, so Darwin is another nice example because Darwin's held up as this real innovator. And he was in the context of Victorian British society because evolution was incredibly radical for British upper-class people. It was associated with French radicalism. It seemed to undermine the view of God's creation of humans and animals and life. But I often like to think, you know, Europe was weird. Europe was about the only place that didn't think evolution was a thing before Darwin. Now, Darwin had a more specific theory about natural selection, of course, that we can get onto. But the broad idea that nature and the world we see today and the different species we identify had come about through some kind of organic process was very common in particularly South Asia, East Asia, Japan, China, Hinduism. So there's that side of it. And Darwin kind of acknowledged this as well, actually. The other side of it is a bit like Newton. Darwin, after the Beagle Voyage, never went anywhere. And he was very reliant on collecting information from around the world. Because, of course, the special thing about science is it's a global thing. It's supposed to work everywhere. So you've got to collect the information everywhere. 
And he was pretty um, liberal, I guess, in terms of where he was willing to collect information from. You know, famously, he corresponded with pigeon fanciers. He wrote letters to Argentine fossil hunters. And he also asked a friend at the British Museum if they would translate sections of a Chinese work of natural history that had been published in the 16th century. In fact, a very famous and influential one, Li Xinzen's Chinese Materia Medica, the Ben Kao Gang Mu. And Darwin literally cites this 16th century Chinese work of natural history in On the Origin of Species. And he cites other works of Chinese natural history in particular in On the Origin of Species, often French translations or English translations. Darwin couldn't read Chinese. And through them, he both had an appreciation that other cultures were talking about the processes of evolution. And he was just collecting evidence for evolution of different kinds of animals beyond what he could see in the fields around Kent at Down House. So again, to kind of do that global science, he himself had to be engaged in a global network, also a kind of global history. You know, he was almost like a historian. He was collecting historical information through linguistic sources as well. Love that. And then Einstein, tell me about him. Yeah, Einstein... So famous pioneer, theories of special and general relativity, also slightly forgotten, a early pioneer of quantum mechanics, although he later fell out with them, some of the later interpretations. And he was very active, actually, in both travelling around the world, giving lectures. This was particularly in the context of the rise of anti-Semitism in Germany. So he actively chose to leave Germany on a big worldwide tour in order to give lectures, correspond, work with Japanese um, physicists, Indian physicists and the like. And one in particular, now often forgotten really outside of India, but really influential 20th century Indian physicist called Satyendranath Bose, born in Dhaka, now Bangladesh, part of British India at the time. Bose produced with his friend Magnad Saha the first English translation of Einstein's theories of special and general relativity. And he also corresponded with Einstein. He wrote a letter to Einstein saying, I've just realised that the statistical accounts of particles, they don't work. Now quantum mechanics has come along. I've got a new statistical account. What do you think? And Einstein wrote back and said that this was hugely important. They continued to correspond. He invited Sachendranath Bose to Germany and they met up and worked together and ultimately produced this new account of particle physics, the groups of particles, which is now called Bose-Einstein statistics. And the really interesting thing here, I think, is that the particle, the boson, so the Higgs boson was the famous one that was discovered a few years ago. The boson bit is named after Bose. So any particles that follow the statistical pattern is called a boson. But I think it's because it's always a lowercase b. So it's very interesting the way people get forgotten. People say boson and they think nothing. They think Higgs. Okay, it's Peter Higgs, the British physicist. But the boson is named after Bose. And in fact, that was acknowledged at the time. The British physicist Paul Dirac actually called it the boson in honour of Bose in the mid-20th century. I think he also gets forgotten. And there's suggestion that this was the case because he published quite a lot in German. And I think probably lots of people thought he was German, as in it was a German Bose, not a Bengali Bosch, basically. <laughs> You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about a new history of science. Big stuff. 
More coming up. Did you know that the earliest condoms were made of animal guts and they were designed to be reused? Or that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac? Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in history lessons, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets now, wherever you get your podcasts. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History Hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. Talk to me about some of the other people that have been overlooked as some interesting, you know, you mentioned Quasi, you mentioned other people. Like, run me through a few scientists who you think ought to be in our pantheon, but aren't, probably because they're from outside Europe. Yeah, I think Graman Quasi is one that has had a bit more recognition recently, but is a really important example of how African scientific figures have both contributed to the making of modern science, but also been forgotten because of the history of enslavement, racism, and structural racism. So Graman Quasi was born in West Africa in the late 17th century. He was enslaved, transported to the Dutch colony of Suriname in South America. But he discovered a local plant, pink flowering plants, which could be ground up the roots into a bitter tea, basically, and used as a treatment for malaria. So a bit like Peruvian bark and the other kinds of barks that have been used. This was another source. And so a very valuable, I mean, very medicinally important, but also commercially valuable thing. So that was a great discovery. But the, the thing that was important here is that he was really fusing his existing knowledge of West African medical traditions and herbal traditions 
with those of Amerindian herbal traditions to produce both the knowledge of this plant and this tea. And usually this kind of knowledge was just straightforwardly appropriated by European naturalists. They would frequently force enslaved people to tell them about the medicinal qualities of plants. In this case, Graham and Kwasi was unusual in that he was publicly recognised. So Carl Linnaeus, the very famous Swedish naturalist who gives us the binomial system of classification, he learned about this plant, he learned about Kwasi, and he named the plant after him. It's called, its scientific name is Cassia amara, from the Latinized version of Kwasi. Amara is in um, bitter, so like a bitter. So Graham and Kwasi is a nice example of how West African science was both overlooked, but was really part of the medical and natural world of science in the 17th and 18th century. He's useful because he has a name, but there were countless others that were often unnamed that fulfilled a similar role. Tell me about uh, Nagaoka, the Japanese scientist. Yeah, so Hantara Nagaoka is maybe the best smoking gun evidence for overlooked scientists. So a Japanese physicist um, working in Japan, in Tokyo, in the middle of the 19th and late 19th century, one of a new generation of scientists trained after the Meiji Restoration, lots of emphasis on industry, economy, nation building. And he proposed what turned out to be the correct structure of the atom. This is another school myth that I was taught. You know, the atom, people used to think it was like a plum pudding, a kind of just one big mass with some electrons and protons squished together. And then we're usually told the British New Zealand physicist Ernst Rutherford came along, did some experiments and worked out that it was a this nucleus with lots of space around it and the electrons spinning around it. But Hantara Nagoka suggested this seven years before Rutherford did. Uh, he worked it out mathematically, so from a kind of theoretical principle about the nature of the atom, the forces involved, and he called it the Saturnian atom, as in like Saturn, the planet, like the rings of Saturn. So he visualised this through this idea that there was a big nucleus in the middle, and there were these rings that were the electrons going round. But Today, we're just told about Rutherford. We're not told about Nagoka. And again, you know, I think, oh, is this some kind of conspiracy theory? What's James on about? But it was widely acknowledged at the time. It's another thing that's really been forgotten, and I think quite deliberately forgotten during the 20th century for various political reasons. Nagoka met Rutherford. They talked to one another. Rutherford invited Nagoka to his laboratory in Manchester, where the famous experiments were done. And Rutherford cited Nagoka in his famous 1911 paper, saying, you know, this very similar model was suggested by Nagoka, and Rutherford had basically done the experimental work to show it was correct. And if you look at textbooks from the time, they talk about Nagoka. I think after the Second World War, in this case, there's a kind of Cold War story, but there's something quite specific about Japan and the way in which pre- Second World War Japanese science was quite deliberately forgotten in that period of kind of imperial nationalist science was uncomfortable both for Japan and for the West for the kind of rebuilding the image of Japan. So I think that might be partly it, as well as kind of broader issues to do with diversity and race in STEM. Give me one more. The Chinese physicist, I love this one, who discovered antimatter. Zhao Zongyao 
was a Chinese physicist. He was born right at the end of the Qing dynasty. So he lived through this period of the Republican Revolution in 1911. He was involved in kind of radical movements, the May 4th movements. And he wanted to study modern physics. This was the future. This wasn't the old kind of ways. This was a way to be new and modern and So he ends up going to the United States, as many Chinese scientists did in this period. He trained ultimately at Caltech, and he did a PhD on looking for new particles, basically. And he did these experiments in what's called a cloud chamber, where you fire particles through a chamber and you can create a photographic image of their trace. This new particle popped up on one of his photographs, and he wasn't quite sure what it was, but he published a paper describing it, its mathematical and physical properties. A couple of years later, American physicist who worked with Zhao Zongliao at Caltech, who was doing a PhD at the same time, they shared offices on the same corridor, they used to chat about their experiments together, a physicist called Carl Anderson. He won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the positron, so the positive electron, form of antimatter that had been predicted. And at the time, he said, oh, I just happened across it by chance. But later, to be fair to him, he was very honest and said, well, actually, you know, I was inspired by the fact that Zhao Zongyao had already done these experiments where he discovered this new particle, which I assume must have been the positron. So Zhao Zongyao, again, was quite swiftly forgotten. He discovered, he was the first to experimentally produce and identify a positron, And I think, again, because of the politics of the 20th century, much like with Japan, pre-World War II Chinese scientists were quite quickly forgotten by the communist state, but also the West. That period of Republican history didn't sit well with either party. The communists didn't want to admit that anything worthwhile had happened in the Republic, and the West didn't really want to think too much about that earlier phase of nationalism. It also, I think, is a good example of about like how we apportion scientific credit. So yeah, it's reasonable to say, well, Zhao Zongyao didn't exactly know what this was, and someone else had done the experimental work later to kind of reconfirm it. Paul Dirac had done lots of the theoretical work. So it's not necessarily my point that it should be Zhao Zongyao instead of whoever. I think some of the way we apportion it solely to individuals is part of the problem, and part of the point of the book is to build up this much bigger picture of all the people that contributed to modern science. And inevitably, when we do apportion it to individuals, it reproduces the sort of hierarchies and structures of today. So it does tend to end up being white dudes from Europe and the United States. And we're living in such an interesting time because, A, there's a natural tendency, sadly, for us to believe that all the best things have come from one of us, like one of our little group. Yep. And we tend to privilege members of this group over others. But B, there was a brief period of like very, very obvious manifest white European global hegemony, right? In yeah. military, cultural and science, in the fields of all those fields. Now that's changing anyway. So we now need to reappraise how we think about these things to challenge our natural biases, I guess, but also because the facts on the ground really, really are changing. A hundred percent. So it's those two things you've mentioned which really motivated me to write the book. You know, I grew up in a generation where I was at university during the financial 2007-8 financial crisis. The world was changing and that 
brief period of sort of post-Cold War optimism, it's a small world, collapsed very quickly. And yeah, there's a longer but not very long history of European hegemony, as you say, in science and technology. So partly it's about looking at ourselves, as you say, our own societies, thinking about why there's lack of diversity in the sciences, who we value in the sciences, what kinds of ideas and people and places matter. But the other is looking outwards, as you say. The West is not the leader in many of the sciences, and it won't be for very long in any case, particularly China, obviously, is the big player in terms of scientific investment, in terms of the number of papers published. It outstrips the USA in both those categories, in particular fields like artificial intelligence. It's investing incredible amounts of money and is ahead of the US in various ways. But as I make the case in the book, the point of the global history approach, and as I talk about quite a lot in the epilogue, is to not just think of this as an East-West or USA versus China, who's the new superpower, but to recognise that the rest of the world also matters, that today the Middle East is also investing massively in the sciences. We've seen things like the UAE's Mars mission. South Asia, India, I mean, has long been actually a really important centre for scientific and technical development in mathematics, computing, physics, more recently in the biological sciences. We've seen that with COVID, obviously, in terms of the production of pharmaceuticals. And I think something that's really missed because of a long history of racism, to be frank, is the rise of sub-Saharan Africa as a place for doing science and technology. That AI centres are being established there. There's a massive growth in African computer science, medical and biological science. And post-COVID, a real, even stronger awareness amongst African states that they can't rely on the rest of the world to come save them because the rest of the world is too preoccupied by its own problems and also the kinds of approaches that have quote-unquote worked in the West aren't necessarily suitable for the demographic and environmental conditions in sub-Saharan Africa. And there's a massive growth in the middle class as well in that region. I mean, as um, one African computer scientist recently said, Mustafa Sise, the future of artificial intelligence is in Africa. And that may have been rhetoric, but I think in the long term, recognising a future of science that, yes, is going to include China, but is also going to include India, Pakistan, the UAE, the Gulf states, Ghana, Kenya, South Africa, etc. That's really, really important. And that's partly the message of my book, because I get the impression lots of people just look at China. Well, thank you very much indeed. That was a gigantic rampage through the history of science and around the world. What's the book called? It's called Horizons, A Global History of Science. Go and get it, everyone. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks, folks. You've reached the end of another episode. Hope you're still awake. Appreciate your loyalty. Sticking through to the end. If you fancied doing us a favour here at History Hit, I would be incredibly grateful if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Please head over there and do that. It really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please head over there and do that. Really, really appreciate it. 
Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.